Welcome, everyone, to Butterflies and Bravery. This is episode 41. Mm. And is it 41? Yeah. No, actually, I think it's going to be 42. This is going to be episode 42. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Or is it 43? Oh, my. I'm so confused. Anyways, this is an episode. (laughs) This is an episode. It's we're. Well, you know, like once you pass your 40s, you're not supposed to say the age anyways. We're in the 40s. We're in the 40s. Yes, in the 40s. And today we are joined by Lisa Kendall. So you are the head of the Counter Cult Coalition. Is that correct? Oh, I think I'm probably bottom of the totem pole. I am the co-founder of the Counter Cult Coalition with Kent Bertner and uh, Megan Cox. And we are mostly located in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. How long have you had that organization? Actually, I've been working with the Counter-Cult Coalition, which is a name or a term I came up with many years ago. Because I noticed that when I would meet with legislators, I would get further if I was with some organization. Of course, And yeah. I was meeting with them as a volunteer to discuss children from cults in the foster care system, things like that. And then just oh, wow. a, I, a few months ago, I decided that it was time to formalize it and get more support, more traction and some leverage. And so I reached out to my longtime friend, Kent Bertner, mm-hmm. and he very readily agreed to be the treasurer that's the hardest job there is. <laughs> that is true. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. It's tedious. And he's so great. And luckily, we've known each other for a long time and worked together and done radio interviews and presentations and worked on different cultic issues and mm-hmm. worked on issues within the cult awareness arena. So we both knew each other really well, our temperaments and styles and personality and character. and. One interesting thing about that is that we're so different, (laughs) and I love that. We work really well together. We are so different. He's very calm and gentle. I've never seen his feathers ruffled ever, no matter what. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, I'm a little bit of a spitfire. I wish I were more (laughs) like him, but we work really well together. When we do a radio interview, it's funny because we're so different and yet it really works. And so that's been great. And Megan is a young woman emerging from a cult and she founded Beyond Zion and Mm -hmm. she's been a terrific secretary. She brings a lot of skills and talents that I don't have. That's for sure. And patience for the things that drive me crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So the sort of the focus of the organization is to try to bring like changes to the legislation and, and in that sort of arena of the government and stuff. Yeah, I should have explained that. Yeah, that's been my focus. So because so like I didn't grow up in the States, I grew up overseas. So I actually don't have a super strong knowledge of the way that our I guess, our government works. What does that look like, the kind of work that you do? Okay, first of all, Australia, like most of Europe, has protections and support for children from cults and adults that the U.S. does not. Yeah, in statute, it's spelled out. 
That makes sense why the kids that got taken in the raids in, in Australia, remember they sent them all to those programs and stuff. That is amazing. A couple of years ago, I decided that I wanted to write a policy brief to suggest public policy for us. So I read through government documents from Japan, England, France, Germany, Australia, even China explicitly calls out if you exploit somebody, if you coerce somebody, you go to jail. And it's been a while since I've read all of these government documents because I have to tell you, it took months. But like one of them spells out the person that you have victimized gets $7,500. They get therapy, medical care. <laughs> so you're saying that China has laws that will jail cult leaders. Yes, and protect the what they call the victims, and wow. we don't. The U.S. does not have. I've wow. now. I've, I've asked everybody. I've been reaching out for a couple of years. We can't find a single thing in the U.S., and so that's one. Thing. And and so let me give you some examples. First of all, I was labor trafficked myself, which was really hard for me. I just recently figured that out. It was like not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not <laughs> labor trafficked. <laughs> So I get the stigma. I was dealing with the stigma from myself. When I was 17, I lived in Minnesota. I chose to go to what is basically like a disciplinary farm. Okay. Um, they were called care and teaching. I did not know that's what it was. I went there. They forced me to work. They took away half of my salary. Then they took three quarters. I was underage. They forced me to work instead of going to high school. And they didn't pay for my medical care, my dental, my glasses. I had to pay for all of it out of what was left while living in a bunk bed in a dorm room with a bunch of women, like in a shack. It's unbelievable to Mm -hmm. me now. And I didn't get to go to high school. I got six months of high school in Portland. And and at the time, that's what I relied on because when I left, I had to make my way in the world with less than a ninth grade education. And so I just told everybody that I graduated in 1980 when I would have. I now have a bachelor's in international studies, a linguistics certificate at the very prestigious linguistics department. Not that I did super well there, but it was it's very prestigious. And a master's wow. in public administration with a focus on public-private partnerships. And so I've studied government. I founded a nonprofit years ago that I was the director of. And I'm only saying this to say that I'm doing this because I really feel like I have to. I grew up in a cult. I got a master's in public administration. And I've set my life up right now so that I can, before I die, pass legislation, affect public policy to protect Hmm. children like me and my friends and my siblings. Because I know how to do it. And people are really receptive here. Legislators are very receptive and they come up with creative ideas. Yeah, that's good. Wow. That's so fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) We have mad respect for anybody that's actually trying to change legislation and stuff like that, because a lot of people like to sit around and talk about what we should do, but... Mm -hmm. 
not that many people actually do it. So to meet somebody that's actually in a position to do something about it and is yeah. actually doing something about it is so fantastic. You probably know uh, Dr. Dr. Yanya Lalich. Uh, we just did an interview with her and and she's oh, I been know that. Yeah. So she's been studying cults for 30 years and she's like you have no idea how frustrating it is the lack of resources. It's so frustrating. The lack of research is, is one of those. That's a, it's a terrible problem. That's yeah. why I'm trying to come up with that and connect with other people who have that. Can I give you just a couple of examples of legislation and how? Perfect. Can... Yes. hundred percent. Okay, so in parts of Utah mm-hmm. where there are various groups that help girls leaving polygamy, you girls and women, but the girls are harder because that means like 16, 17 years old, trying to escape marrying a much older man, often a relative. And there are people who work full time helping these girls escape full time there. And I, every time I hear about it, I'm shocked because you want to think you want to believe, oh, it happens every once every few months that a girl is trying to leave. It is so much more common than that. And until recently, when, let's say, a 16-year-old who is being forced to marry somebody who they don't want to, they want to leave, the authorities, anybody who met them or were involved had to tell the parents within 24 hours where they were. Many cases, the girl wouldn't be seen again. They whisk them away somewhere. They passed a law, so they have three days before they have to tell the parents where the girl is. I'm sure in some cases it's a boy. I just haven't heard of those. And they have attorneys waiting who immediately file for emancipation, get them to a safe house, and they go on to live a much more meaningful life of their own choosing. And so people don't understand. It doesn't take that much because these laws make so much sense that when you go to legislators, they are receptive. In one situation I was involved in, I was helping the authorities have a teacher in Alaska in the cult I grew up in, the move of God, have their license revoked. And even though there was like, it was so obvious this teacher needed to have their license revoked. And for the purposes of this interview, I will say that she was alleged to do something. She was alleged to have pulled down the pants of students in the classroom in front of other students, like over 18, spanking them for like crazy minor infractions. And when the authorities looked into it, she was able to say, oh, no, I wasn't his teacher that day. I was substituting. I was in a classroom. In Oregon, that wouldn't matter. So the problem is, if you're in one state trying to assist with the situation in another state, and you don't know what their laws or regulations are, it's that that much more challenging. When people are doing this on a volunteer basis, and so when I met with Jackie Dingfelder, our state senator, or I met with, I should say, several times with one of her aides, Jackie is the one who suggested that we look at having a nationwide mandated reporting laws. And 
then of course mm-hmm. she ended up going to the private sector. We didn't end up following through, but it was the experience I had working with them and seeing how receptive they are and the ideas. And when things kept falling apart that I was working on, I was frustrated. I said, I want to figure out how we can, this was like a couple of years ago, how we can make this more permanent. And I looked into it and found out that other people were having the exact same challenges because you're dealing with elected officials who aren't in office forever. You happen to meet somebody a year before they're out of office. They're ready to do it. The next person comes in and they're busy with the new administration. You start all over. So that's why we need policy briefs, amicus briefs. We need documents that people can share. And so that's what I want to do. And I want to use Australia's good work as an example for what Mm -hmm. we can do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. (laughs) What I've wondered about in this arena is uh, the cart versus the horse type of, or maybe it's more like the chicken and the egg, what came first, because there is legislation that that we need. There's, there's laws that need to be enacted. There's, we need to have that support system, but there's also this huge problem with that. The majority of the world doesn't even recognize cult survivors as victims. Exactly. And that, that has always interested me is where do you go first? Because yes, we need these laws. We need to like just f- fucking end the statute of limitations. That's a super important legislation that needs to happen. But then at the same time, if you're working off of a platform where nobody knows why you even care about it. You, you, so it's like, how do you make both those things happen at the same time? You know, I'm really glad you brought this up because that's, so for instance, I look at it like we're each taking a little bite at the problem. By you mm. asking that question, we're raising awareness, which is how we get political feasibility, economic feasibility, which is what we need, administrative feasibility. We have to have people in the general public care about former members of cults, the children in cults, especially what I focus on. These are the most vulnerable American citizens. They are American citizens, not guaranteed by our constitution. And you just brought up the uh, statute of limitations. Child USA is working on that and they've made progress. They're able to pass tolling regulations to toll, which means pause the statute of limitations for child members of abuse situations. They don't specifically work on cults. They work on child abuse. And Rita Swan of Child Inc., who worked on child health care related to faith-based medical neglect and on the, you know, and cults. She has passed a baton to them from her amazing work passing legislation to better Mm. protect people like those of us who grew up in cults. So if we all work together and share our resources, we share our work. That's why I want to have policy briefs that I want to write before the end of this year that other people can use. And I am already like benefiting from the work of all of those other people who have shown us this is how you do it. Like the great Rita Swan. Yeah, that's definitely something we need a lot more awareness about. Because usually when you tell people, when you eventually tell them, (laughs) I grew up in a cult, they're either one of two things from my reactions. Number one, they don't believe you. They think you're just making it up. Really? I've never heard that. I've had it so many times, especially I think because 
in our cases, growing up in the children of God, the stories are just so freaking like, there's no way that could have happened to you. Yeah. That people just don't believe that. I get it all the time, especially here where I live in rural Idaho. People just don't believe it. That's one of the unfortunate things. People who grew up where they're isolated and denied an education and told not to think for themselves, they don't always fare well. And it's yeah. sometimes it's hard being friends with the people you grow up with. Yes. Don't always fare well is an understatement. When I first left, I, I just, I felt like I was a hundred percent alien. Just <laughs> nothing. I didn't know anything. I didn't know TV show. Even to this day, all the people are talking about whatever, some show, because I was out of America from 1985 to 1997. Where were you? So so don't pick you for the trivia challenges, right? Right. Uh, Well, I don't know. Well, now. I went to Mexico first and then Japan and then the Philippines. And I was only 12 when I left my mother and went to Mexico. I was 12. And then I was 14 years old when I went to Japan, 15 years old when I went to the Philippines, and 16 and I went to Thailand. And then I went to India and Russia and traveled all over Europe and then ended up back in the Portland area. <laughs> That's funny. That's where we were like reunited after yes. not having seen each other for what, 10, 15 years? Yep. Portland. The only good thing about that is that you got to travel. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. and mm-hmm. And that's... We we both want to go back to some of those places, though, because mm-hmm. the pretense and like the whole way that you felt in that country had to do with the way that the cult wanted you to see or act or feel. And so some of them, I want to go back and make a better connection with the country because <laughs> like Thailand, I love Thailand in so many ways. But then also we never got to just, oh, let's just go to the beach. I mean, we went to the beach once, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> experience in the mood we went hiking one time and it's the highlight of my year and a half in minnesota yeah exactly one hike people always ask what were the good things yeah yeah Yeah. i don't know i worked all the time Uh, (laughs) was that just what did you say it was called the move of god yeah, Sam Fife in the 60s started the move of God. Okay. I'm ready with schizophrenic, and I think that there there are some definite signs that could be true. He was an unemployed um, former Baptist preacher. Why? I know, that's why, that's why. Stumbling around New Orleans. And then he goes back to fucking, I think it was Florida, Georgia and Florida and founds this religion where God wants you to meet in your houses. And God called him to birth the man child, the many membered man child to save the world because it was about to end and the flesh would be dripping from trees. And we would, so the bad people would walk out the tribulation. Some other people I think would just go straight to hell and yeah. we would help usher in help all of those people who are walking through the tribulation to be perfected. It's just such bullshit we grew up with. And I had to listen to this three nights a week for three or four hours for from nine to 19. Wow. Instead of learning about science or math or social studies. Yeah. 
Or how to make a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I, dream, I remember making my first phone call when I was 16. It was so, I was terrified. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, we were very isolated. Sheltered is not even. I am so sorry, you guys. That's terrible. (laughs) We like to joke about it and laugh about that's hard about it because I'm actually very lucky in some ways. My mother was very problematic, so she was a horrible mother. But the good thing (laughs) was she was so horrible that we didn't get to go to one of the isolated farms where we could be raped and abused and neglected and uneducated. So there was not that, of course, not everyone was, but too many were. And so, so your organization had different levels. Yeah, that makes, I think we had that too. How it worked, it wasn't supposed to be different levels. There were the father ministry, the traveling ministry, the elders, and then the rest of us. And I was bottom of the totem pole because I had an unpopular mother. Uh, She was of below average intelligence with mental illness and very difficult. But the families who were more stable got to go to these farms, which was our dream. So all of the money my single mother had went into buying all of these things. Um, I'm sorry. One of my cats doesn't realize I'm on a podcast. He just knocked the box over. Oh, he's so cute. Trying to entertain himself. Oh, I love him. Fuzzy face. face. Our basement was full of like washboards. You'd wash your clothes on. Like, why don't you just wait until you're going to go to buy this stuff or take it by when you get there? I don't know. So my mother filled our basement with this wish list of bizarre things like bright pink down coats that were on sale because they were bright pink and ugly. So we had to wear them in Portland, Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) Because the idea was you would move out to the wilderness to hide from the government so that you wouldn't have to take the mark of the beast. Oh God. Yeah. Same. Oh my God. You're kidding. It's insane. People had kettle sewing machines and all the girls were making their menstruation pads with flannel and we had all this shit in our basement but my mother could barely afford school clothes for us and then the other families went off to do this in alaska or canada or guatemala or wherever mostly alaska so we still have uh, hundreds and hundreds of acres of land in the move of god and i say we I am so sorry. My cats wow. just don't understand what's happening. <laughs> I hope you can't hear all of that. They're like, all right. They're like, excuse me, I would like to be interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> they have stuff to say. <laughs> and then they liked it. They're fighting each other over a box right now. Uh, <laughs> it's funny cats and boxes. Like, oh, yes. I love my cats. But getting back to that. So we move out to these isolated farms, hundreds of acres. And you, if you were moved there and or were born there, like too many people were, you went to school in the tabernacle, you ate in the tabernacle. That's where there were the meetings and you worked on the farm. Like people would bring water from the river by horses and work in the garden, work in the kitchen. And then the men were building the cabins. Too many of the children were working, of course. A lot of the children early on quit school at six sixth grade yep. to do work. And then the people who stayed behind 
got the benefit of all that labor. They've got hundreds of acres of developed property. Mm. And all these former children lacking educations who, you know, like some of them work on the pipelines in Alaska today with eighth grade educations or sixth grade, their bodies are giving out. They weren't given a nutritious diet and they have to work long past retirement because of this when the leaders made off with the money. Yeah. Yeah. That's how our cult worked. <laughs> no, that sounds yeah, no, way too relatable. Yeah, <laughs> it was very similar. Which is I why mean, we need to raise awareness. Yes, exactly. And that's for why sure. we need more resources in this country for kids that come out of situations like this because they have nothing. When I left, I literally, I was a single mother. I had absolutely nothing. I'm absolutely so sorry. Nothing. I do understand. We still have survived yeah. <laughs> somehow. No, <laughs> I had no. I had siblings, and it was really hard. I remember when I was, gosh, how old? What twenty? My niece, my my younger sister, lived with me when I was twenty. She was would have been sixteen, and I could barely afford heat. Somebody came over and said, "If you want her to stay with you, you should turn the heat up." And I didn't know how to say. And that was somebody from the move. With what money? (laughs) I'm working two jobs with less than a ninth grade education. Yes. Yeah. It's sad that there's so many kids that end up like that. And then a lot of them don't, can't find a way to survive in the world. So you obviously get it that way too many of us end up in prisons, insane asylums, you know, early graves. Yes. And I'm lucky enough that I can afford to travel and I have a wonderful social life and I do not take it for granted. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sure it was really hard come by too. Yeah. And I've set my life up so that I can have a social life, travel and spend the rest of my life passing legislation before I die. It is the most important thing. I would give up everything else for that because honestly, the way I look at it is there are so many people on this planet today and there are so many people who are long dead. And especially since my life had so little value growing up, on some level, I look at it like I'm expendable. But also, I think that none of us are really worth that much in the cosmic scheme And when you think about animals and whole ecosystems, and so for me, I'm going to be dead someday. And I don't want a name for myself. I never have. But I do want to pass legislation to protect children from cults, to make a difference. Because I partly, I want all of that horrific suffering and emptiness and loneliness and abuse and neglect and exploitation to be for a good cause and because I happen to have the education and the background for it. Having founded a nonprofit, I had no idea I was ever going to be doing this. I didn't even know I grew up in a cult. If I had, I would. everything would be different. But <laughs> yep. I got a master's in public administration before I even realized that I um, had grown up in a cult. And I founded a nonprofit to do nature education for low-income Hispanic students because they get the least nature education and we need to protect whole ecosystems. Our, our home, our home is so much broader than where we live. And so I did that for several years 
halftime without ever taking a salary because, you know, how I first set it up, we were able to make money. But when I recognized the need for Hispanic students, there was no way we could do it and charge them. And so we totally changed the model and I didn't take a salary and it was really hard, but we did great things that I'm super proud of. I learned a whole lot. Managing a nonprofit without a lot of money where you're not taking a salary, you're making mistakes. And I made mistakes I learned a lot from. We had a lot of great successes. So all putting all of that together, it's only natural that I would be here today saying, let's all work together and (laughs) volunteer our time to pass legislation to help the former children like us. And if you didn't grow up like us, there are American citizens out there who need to benefit from the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the other things yeah. that our country offers citizens. Yeah. yeah. And, and then being able to bring like these pieces together, because awareness is a huge part of it. And, but yeah. then also all of the, the resources that are so lacking. And so people like us, we come out of our situation, we come out of you know, wherever we are born into or brought into. And we're like, oh, we need solutions. We need to build these resources. And so like when you start going and doing these research, there's all these little pockets all over the place. If someone started a halfway home, someone started this foundation, someone started up that foundation. Yeah. But but a lot of times we are all unaware of each other as well. Yeah. You know, we, we, we've not heard of each other, but yet we're all asking for the same thing. Yes. So that is another super important thing about the awareness that I think not only is there an education that's going to be brought to the general public to say, hey, these needs are super important, but there's also going to become an awareness for us, for like cult survivors, where we can start saying, let's work together. Let's pull together our resources. Let's pull together these things that we started, these these foundations or these organizations or movements or whatever have you. It, it does. I think it does really all start in awareness. That's really a super important aspect of Which it. Which is why we need podcasts like yours. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was yes. so appreciative when you reached out to me and uh, <laughs> you'd like to interview me. I don't. I would like to suggest someone you guys need to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Debbie Shriver. She is the president of the International Cultic Studies Association. She's one of the busiest people I know. Her resume is way too strong to, to <laughs> go into. She, I think she's a retired college professor, head of a department or something. I can't remember recently founded a nonprofit to work on prevention of child abuse. A lot of nonprofits stagnate at times. And so she's worked on modernizing and making the organization more inclusive. She's doing really wonderful work. In fact, the Portland Raging Grannies gave her a Golden Apron Award last month. Raging Grannies? (laughs) (laughs) Is that what she's, did I hear that right? Okay, okay, I'm actually an official Portland Raging Granny. <laughs> and, I don't awesome. have, and I never had children. That is <laughs> I even better. Oh my okay, so oh it's a God. national organization. And I think I thought it was international, but I think it's national. So the so we dress up in granny costumes with granny aprons and big hats with huge flowers. And then we show up at protests and other events in City Hall and other things and sing these terrific songs. 
And <laughs> about like why we need to get rid of the gas leaf blowers that they smell. Everybody goes like, <laughs> and so you see all these women dress and, and the women can dance. I can, there are women in their eighties who can really kick it up. I'm an avid snowshoer, kayaker and hiker, and I can't keep up with some of these women. <laughs> it's amazing. And yeah, no, they have events all the time, like almost every single week. Very active with different committees. On the, I'm on the environmental committee. Oh, wow. <laughs> How funny. You're a busy woman. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun group. We, in fact, my cat, Sebastian, who was just being naughty back here, when we did a Zoom to send to city council when they were like looking at the leaf blower thing. And we were all singing on camera. And while I was doing this, the whole time Sebastian was pulling my hat off. And <laughs> at the very end, he pulled the hat off. That was the end. I had no hat. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. That is just hilarious. I forgot my point. Oh, that's right. The Portland Raging Grannies gave Debbie Shriver a Golden Apron Award. That is cool. That would be awesome. Yeah. Like golden apron. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the golden apron. Oh, the other women who got it. One was from Planned Parenthood. One, a woman, Lori Bauman, who started a kitchen to teach people with developmental disabilities how to work in a restaurant, basically. And they go on to get jobs. Just wonderful recipients. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. There's a lot of good happening in the world. There, yes. <laughs> we need to hear more about it. Yes. We, do. I totally we, agree. Do. we have to be the ones to counter all the bad. And we have to yell to everybody about our little lights that are shining. <laughs> <laughs> How did you guys meet? We met in the cult. We both were born and raised in the children of God. And we met at a teen program in Thailand. They broke us apart so many times. We weren't allowed to talk to each other, sit next to each other. They wouldn't even have us in the same colonies for a long time. We were just completely separated. Yeah, I don't know how it's to call me. We we call them homes, but... Yeah, homes. But see that if you tell somebody a home, they don't think of that. They think of an old folks home or like a mental institution or something like that. But to us, that was just... Yeah, we lived very communally in Thailand for a long time. And in the Philippines and in Japan, I lived with 200 people like, yeah, yeah for a couple of years, actually. Yeah, wow. Yeah, this is the same group that River and uh, Joaquin Phoenix were in. Yes, yes. and Rose yep. McGowan. And yeah, exactly. They left quite young. I used to be really jealous of the kids that got to leave young. And then I realized afterwards that because of, from a lot of the stories that we've heard, because of the parents and their attitudes and the abusiveness of them, they carried on. It was just as bad as Mm -hmm. if not worse than being in the cult because they couldn't escape their abusive parents. Oh my God. Well, well, yeah. And I mean, just starting so young, like your formative that influences for sure. It's, wow. Uh, oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> we well, rise, right? Yes, exactly. We've raised a lot of awareness about the issues and also about our organization because our goal is a uh, political feasibility. 
and economic feasibility. If people care about an issue, they want some of their tax dollars to go there. That's mm-hmm. what happened with trafficking. You always hear about trafficking in the U.S. because we're more puritanical. People are more concerned about sex trafficking than labor trafficking. Yep. And yeah. both are very serious issues that undermine someone's ability to have a meaningful life. Yeah. And the ironic thing about it is that most cults are doing that to their people, both labor and sex trafficking. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So, yeah. In one way or another, in in our case, what it was with the move was elders and higher ups looking the other way at children who were raped because we've got a mission on our hands. There's a bigger picture. We can sacrifice the children for that. And what a lot of it comes down to is just authoritarian, ignorant, older white men in most cases, not wanting to Mm -hmm. deal with something and being insensitive and not caring. But they would say it was, oh, because we've got a bigger mission. And they would refuse, like really refuse women reporting rape, people reporting rape. It was a real problem with us. And it was not condoned by any means, but it was still not addressed. And because of it, the same people would perpetrate over and over. Yeah. A cult seems to be a very safe place for uh, a pedophile or abusive. Yes. Yeah. All of those things. It's a safe place. And then unfortunately they use, tend to use the mask of religion or God or whatever to either Mm -hmm. excuse what they're doing or to make themselves feel better about it afterwards. I prayed and God forgave me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, we heard that a lot. Or they would ask the, the four-year-old girl to forgive the 55-year-old man. Yeah. It's interesting um, talking to you guys rather than some other things I've done in the past because you both understand. And so instead of being in disbelief, echoing it, which is actually very comforting. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it's different when you've lived it and and not just heard about it, but actually been there. I don't think there's really any way that people who didn't grow up in a cult can understand it. The best, like, way that we've found to describe it is like prisoners of war, like the way that they would be treated, or like a labor camp type of a thing because no power i had no idea i had human rights i didn't know what civil rights were and that's one of the things that's really important to me at the international cultic studies associations conference in 2014 i showed my research on how to uphold human rights um, for teenagers mostly in isolated communities how to let them know that they have human rights yeah that's something we certainly did not know. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I know. If I had to, if someone had sat me down and said, they're forcing you to work and they're taking the money when you're a child by law and they're supposed to pay for your medical and dental, I would have signed, oh, sign me up. I'll sign a piece of paper saying, fuck this. You need to pay me for all my labor and my misery for what you put me through. I would have signed on the dotted line. But yeah. instead... I went along suffering, figuring out how I'm going to pay for all these rotten teeth. Yeah, absolutely. I know you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just a yes. commodity. You're not really of value to them while yeah. they're telling you you're such great value to keep you in the fold. 
Yeah. I'm just glad I left at 19. I can't imagine what would have happened if I'd stayed longer. Yeah. We were both in our late twenties when we left. Oh, I'm so sorry. It, 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 I oh. honestly, I got excommunicated for yeah. smoking pot. Lucky. I don't know that I ever would have left. That's the know. best pot you ever smoked. Seriously, though, <laughs> because it was my freedom pot. <laughs> and I didn't even know it. Yeah. Yeah. That is a thing, though. I, I think that we have an appreciation of our rights and our freedoms more than a lot of people would. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, not that I'm saying it's the right way to come by it, but I know that no, no. it's some, it's a value. It, it It's something that we treasure in a very different way from the average person is our freedoms and our rights. Yes. Can I tell you about a project I worked on? Yeah. Yes. I would have these conversations with people and this is a bit dark, but several years ago, you know, for over many years, people from the move, at least were in my area. Someone would say, oh, you know, that person who my sister, she married my cousin or he married my cousin. You know what I mean? Things like that. And I would hear it from two, like two different ears, you might say. It was totally normal to me, but I also lived in the real world where that's not normal. And these things would happen all the time. These conversations we would have were so dark. And I know about eight years ago, I said that I said to somebody like, on the phone, we should document this. It should be documented. <laughs> this is our oral history, and so we should document it. And somehow that led to me um, interviewing people for several months and putting out feelers on Facebook and other hmm. forms of social media and email. And so that I would end up getting information from people who I didn't know, places I'd never been. And I created spreadsheets with abuser, victim, and state. You could sort by those three things. And then there were margins where for uh, witnesses. And so I created an Excel spreadsheet where SA stood for sexual abuse, PA for physical abuse, across. So let's say one person accused someone of harming them in some way. If you gave the document to the authorities they could look up the perpetrator, the assailant, the accused suspect, mm -hmm. and then they could sort by that person's name and see who else had accused them of abuse in other states or other countries. It was only Canada and Alaska, Canada and the U.S. And, and then witnesses and dates and all of that. And it was used by the authorities in Alaska and then sent down to Florida, not Georgia, I was going to say Georgia, Florida. And even though it was helpful for the authorities, but only limited because of statute of limitations and nobody currently being abused and all of that, but it provides a template for people to think about what you can do. If you're recently leaving and you have these stories, those stories can be a document. And I'm telling you, the authorities were very happy to get it. We worked with a woman um, wow. in Alaska who was hell-bent on making a difference, especially after getting that document. So there are things we can do. And people are like, what's so complicated? It's religion. No, it's not. If we're talking about forcing children to work, there are laws against that. And 
as Kent Bertner, my co-founder, regularly reminds me, in England, coercion is against the law. We can make it against the law here. It might take us 10 years or 20 years, but it can happen. We have gay marriage here now. We can do these things. We can yes. We can make improvements, and we just need to, <laughs> to know it, to think it, to dream it, to make these things happen by asking for them. And in our arena, we don't ask for enough. We just accept, oh, it's too hard. And there are all of these movements that have required people to do some pretty extreme things to get the right to vote, to basic freedoms. It's our turn. We are the next movement. And we need to understand that there are concrete things we can do. And I think if people understood that, they would be more supportive. Yeah. This has been fantastic. It's been really good talking to you. And thank you so much for all that you're doing and for the cause. And thank yes, you. It, thank you so much for this forum. I really, <laughs> you guys are terrific. Oh, it, means, it means a lot to people like us that grew up in cults that there are people that are trying to do something, not just sitting around talking about how somebody should try and do something. No, it's such important work. It's really wonderful. Yes. Thank you. I've never been interviewed by former cult members before. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And cool. it's so <laughs> different. It's so much more accepting and understanding and less scrutinizing. <laughs> Another thing. Another thing I experienced uh, years ago in radio interviews were somebody who knows absolutely nothing about it, thinking they need to push me to talk about dark things you know, and telling me so. It's like, oh my gosh, yes, I, yeah. I, you need to respect my boundaries. But I've never said that out loud to anyone before. But you guys are so wonderful. I, to, I want to explain what it's like to have some of the other experiences out there. <laughs> And they really leave a mark on you. Like in my head, yeah. years later, it still bugs me. Like, how dare you? Yeah. No, thank you so much for what you do. We really do need this. So thank you very much. And I would be so happy to support you in any way I can. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> if you have a link or whatever where people can donate, because a lot of our listeners are interested in donating to causes like yours that are actually mm -hmm. trying to get legislation passed and making an actual difference all right well we'll end this like we always do stay brave and remember that every butterfly was once a caterpillar <laughs> that's sweet i definitely was a caterpillar <laughs> <laughs> yeah me too had a pile of mush for a few years <laughs>